But again, it's good to see everybody this morning. We're going we're gonna to continue a sermon series called Seeing Jesus. Uh, and I'm going to preach from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, I put so many verses in this message that uh, Forrest is back there scared to death in the media, media booth. Uh, but we're going to get through this together. And, and where, where I want to end up at the end of this message is uh, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where it actually says that, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I want to talk about being transformed in ever-increasing glory. That sounds pretty awesome to me. I don't know about you. I like that, though. So, we, But we need to figure out what that means. We need to figure out what the, that means in the context of this scripture. So we're going to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and, and go through that. But uh, before we do, uh, I, want to, I want us to pray together. But listen, when we, when we get into the Word, what we have to understand, and what we have to understand as a church, and maybe this is going to end up being the, the most important theme of this message, I'll go ahead and give it to you before uh, we even get into it, is that we have to learn to become a people of the Word of God. Yeah. We overcome... Ultimately, because we know the Word of God, and that Word of God is in our hearts, and it's in our mouths. And, and, and the Word of God is literally what the, 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 the Scripture says, that we are born again of incorruptible seed by the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God in our life. Uh, several guys in my small group here recently, they've been testifying about the power of the Word of God in their life because they've been Christians for maybe even, even years, but they've never really spent time in the Word of God. And they talked about, uh, Richard Jones was testifying just the other day when we had house church that, that, that he had gone through some just a difficult time this past year, but what really transformed his life was just learning to spend time with God in His Word. And he got certain scriptures that would apply specifically to his situation. He was dealing with overwhelming anxiety. Anybody ever been there? So he got some battle verses, man. He got some verses that he could hang on to, and every day he would get up and read them first thing in the morning until he memorized them, and they got into his heart, they saturated his soul, and, all, and day by day he's overcoming because the Word of God is hidden in his heart. Amen? It's essential that we understand and know the Word of God, that it's in our heart, that we live by it. And so this is really the context, the overall message of this scripture. But we're going to get into some, get into some, into some stuff that can be confusing at times, but we'll try to break it down verse by verse and make sense of it. So let's, let's read 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6, and, uh, and then we'll pray. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, it says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need like some people... Letters of recommendation to or from you. Now, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, look, do I need a letter of recommendation before I come to you? He says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for, anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is incorruptible seed. Lord, everything else in this world that we hear, it's corruptible seed. It perishes, it doesn't last, it doesn't transform us, God. But your word is incorruptible seed, and I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, it would be, it would be planted into the depths of our heart 
that it would bring transformation and healing and growth. And Lord Jesus, that through all of it, we would see you more clearly and be changed by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul's writing this letter to the, to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians, they're having a difficult time receiving Paul as a minister of the gospel. They doubt his authority because he doesn't speak that well. He's not very eloquent, they say. And, and, and he ends up speaking to them, and he says, listen, do I need a letter of recommendation? He says, you want to know what my letter of recommendation is? He says, my letter of recommendation is your lives. He says, if you look at the people around you and the people in the congregation around you, he said, when we proclaim the gospel, we didn't just speak another philosophy, but we were proclaiming the word of God that came in spirit and in power and it transformed human hearts and lives. He says, what we're talking about is not written. He said, these letters that we're talking about, not, they were not written on tablets of stone, but they were written on your hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, if you want to know that this new covenant ministry is real, that what we're preaching is genuine, all you have to do is begin to look at the lives of people around you. Now, I know, I know people in here. I know where they've come from. I know where I've come from. And I know that this gospel is real, and nobody can tell me that God or Jesus Christ is not real, that this gospel is not true, because I've seen too many lives transformed. I've seen too many people set free from the power of sin and bondage and addiction. I've seen too many people living in fear and depression and anxiety and on the verge of suicide that the power of the gospel set them free and transformed their lives. Amen. He's saying this thing's not written on tablets of stone. It's written in human hearts and everybody bears witness to it by the lives that you live. You're now filled with the spirit of God. He's changed your heart. He says this, I don't need a letter of recommendation. You are my letter of recommendation. That this gospel is real, that this new covenant that we're preaching about is real. And see, he begins to say in verse six, he says, now, He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Now, that's very important because when we talk about reading the Bible, a lot of people, they'll read in the Old Testament, they'll read in the New Testament, and we should read the entire Bible because all of it is essential. We never throw out the Old Testament, but we do understand what the Old Testament is. It is a different covenant that God had with His people Israel. We're no longer under that covenant, so there's a certain way that we have to read it. And Paul is saying we're no longer preaching or ministers of an old covenant, and he's going to compare the two. He's going to compare the old covenant with the new covenant. He says, but God has made us ministers of a new covenant. Now, the old covenant, when you read it in Scripture, it's going to call it the law. Y'all heard that, heard that in Scripture, right? They're, they say, well, they were under the law. They were under the law. That's the old covenant. But in the new covenant, it says that we are under something else. We're under something called grace. Now, we talked about that last week, if you remember. So you got the difference between these two things. And he says that this covenant, this ministry is not of the letter or of the law, the letter of the law, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, this will be this will be review for a lot of you. But we understand in the old covenant that the old covenant was established on the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament. Amen. Anybody anybody agree with me this morning, right? On the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament, what had happened was is that God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, which is symbolic of how God brings us out of the bondage of this world and out of the bondage of sin. And he brought them over the Red Sea, which is a picture of our baptism. And they had applied the blood of the lamb, which is a picture of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that is what set them free and brought them out from that bondage and from that slavery. Now, 50 days after the Passover, after they were set free out of Egypt, 50 days after... Moses is on a mountain with God. 
God comes off that mountain with two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and before they got to the bottom, the people at the bottom of the mountain had already broken the Ten Commandments because they were already worshiping golden calves. Now, when Moses got to the bottom, he was so angry because of the holiness of God that he broke both of the, ta- the, the, the tablets of stone, uh, and, and he broke them both, and he made them drink the ground-up golden calves. And on that day, he said, you're going to have to make a decision whether you're with the Lord or whether you're not. And on that day, 3,000 people were killed because of their rebellion and disobedience. In the new covenant, Jesus died on what day? Passover. Because he became the Passover lamb. Matter of fact, we find out that according to the New Testament, Jesus was the Passover lamb. God was saying, you know, when they applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost so they could get set free from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt and sin... He said that was actually Jesus, the picture of Jesus dying for your sins so you could be set free. And guess what? Fifty days after Jesus died on the cross on Passover as our Passover lamb and sacrifice, they were all in one upper room, in one accord, praying and waiting on God for the promise. And that day the law was not given, but guess what was given? The Spirit of God was given. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same men that were scared to death before and were not able to live for Jesus the way that God had called them to live for Jesus, all of a sudden they were empowered to live in a way that they could never live before. Because see, the law demands something from you but does not give you the power to do it. But the Spirit of God not only demands something from you but empowers you to do it. Amen. Now that's good gospel right there. I'm glad that I'm not under an old covenant anymore because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, what does it mean the letter kills? The letter kills. In this sense, we talked about now, now on the day of Pentecost, New, New Covenant, when they preached the gospel because they were filled with the Spirit, what happened? 3,000 people didn't die. 3,000 people got saved because they heard that Jesus Christ was the one who died for their sins and took the penalty as if he had broken every law. He transformed things. He changed things. And 3,000 people were saved. It was a new Pentecost, a new covenant that was established. See, the letter kills because the law is what begins to, it begins to show you that you, are, you, you're, you broke the covenant. You've not, you have not done everything that God has asked you to do. And anybody in here that says they do, they, they, they have done that. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're bad wrong. And, and in your arrogance and in your pride... In self-righteousness, you're going to keep yourself distant from God because God, God is not pleased when you think that you can bring all of your righteousness to Him as an acceptable offering. He's pleased when you realize that you can't and instead you put your faith in Jesus, the one who could only offer the acceptable offering. That's what He likes. That's what is pleasing to Him. What's pleasing to him is not when I come in here every Sunday and say, Lord, look at all the good stuff I've done this week. Man, I was righteous. I was holy. I was pure. I praise you, Lord. Give you glory. <laughs> now, what he likes is when I come in here and I say, Lord, whatever I was able to do this week, I'd do it by your grace and by your spirit because I know that left to my own self and in my own righteousness, it's nothing but filthy rags. But you have transformed my life. You've given me a new heart. You've given me a new mind. And for that, I give you glory because the only way that I stand before you today and you receive me is by the blood of Jesus alone. And that's the new covenant that we're in. I like Jeremiah and these guys. Listen, the old covenant was bad in, in a lot of ways. It was a rough thing. And matter of fact, God even said that he, didn't, he, he was waiting for a time that he could bring them out of the old covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, he prophesied about this. Let's read this together. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. He says, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
Next verse. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. See, he said, I brought them out of Egypt. I gave them the Ten Commandments. I established my old covenant with them. He said, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He's saying the covenant of the old covenant was if you keep these rules, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. It's pretty good, right? You know how many people kept them? None. Means they were under the curse. Means it didn't go well. Means things were bad, bad shape. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. See, the law was on the outside of them in the old covenant. They had nothing on the inside to empower them to do what God asked them to do. But in the new covenant, he says, I'm going to fill them with a spirit and there's going to be a law now in their minds and in their hearts and they will do what I'm asking them to do. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Next verse, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Now that term know, it's a term for intimacy. It doesn't just mean you have head knowledge of God. It's actually a term that's used in the Bible between a man and his wife in intimate relationship. He's saying they're going to know me intimately and nobody will have to say, hey, know the Lord because they will all know me. What he's saying is in the new covenant, it's about intimate relationship. It's not about rule keeping, it's about intimate relationship. Because out of an intimate relationship, he's saying that you will, by nature, begin to keep the rules, but it's not about rule keeping. Does that make sense? He's saying that you gotta, you, you got to understand this is all about knowing the Lord, but then I love this, and a lot of times we overlook this and we take it for granted, but he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Why is that important? Because in the old covenant, God says, yes, I am a gracious God. I'm a compassionate God. But under the old covenant, I will visit your sins to the third and the fourth generation. That means that under the old covenant, God will not only punish you for your sins, but he will punish your children and your children's children and your children's children for their sins. But in the new covenant, he says, when you're washed in the blood of Jesus, not only are you forgiven in this moment, but I will remember your sins no more and no longer will I punish you because Jesus took all the punishment that you could ever have for your sins and it's an overpayment to the point that not only will I set you free but that covenant will come upon your children and upon your children's children and no longer will I bring your sins against you or them because I'll remember them no more that's good news right there folks that's why it's called the gospel because it's good news and in Ezekiel, Ezekiel got a foreshadowing of the same thing. He put that up there. He says, at this time, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Next verse says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And I love this and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Because what he realized was that he could not, none, what God realized and what all the people finally realized, and this was the point of giving the law, was that God needed to give you the law so that you could recognize you could not keep it on your own strength. So that finally you would say, I need a Savior, and Jesus would be there to save you. But not only that, you would enter into a covenant now where you didn't have to remain distant from God, but that you could be filled with God. That God could now live in you. Why, why can God now live in you? Now see, in the old covenant, what happened was, in the old covenant, they would have to bring the blood of bulls and goats and, and oxen and birds and all kinds of things. And, and those, the blood of these animals would atone for your sins for one year. And you'd have to come back every year and atone for your sins again. And it wouldn't even put them away. It would just cover them for one year. But when Jesus 
died on the cross, the perfect Son of God, the Holy Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish. When He died and His blood was sacrificed for you, His blood atoned for your sins once and for all so that He would never have to make another sacrifice again. The sacrifice has already been paid. And the Scripture says that if you walk in the light, even as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And see, we have that in our lives. And He says, and when you begin to understand this, and this truth is real in you, you become so clean by the blood of Jesus that God says, that vessel is clean enough for me to live in. You say, but you don't know what I've done, Clay. Well, you don't realize how powerful the blood of Jesus is. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that it cleans you. So, man, you, you know, my, my wife, when people come over to the house, she, is, you know, she's, she, she wants to keep that sucker clean. Right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and we're worried about it because if anything's been going off, people coming over, you got to make sure that thing, she's like, you know, you got to make sure this thing's been clean because, be, you know, I'll have beard hairs all over the sink and stuff. She'll flip out. Amen. <laughs> And, and what happens is when we, when we know the condition of our own home, we don't necessarily want anybody to come into it. When we know the condition of our own home, we're like, man, I just ain't clean enough. But I'm telling you, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and people begin to understand the power of the blood, they stop looking at how unclean their home is and they recognize, man, the blood of Jesus has made me so clean that the holy God himself wants to live on the inside of me. Man, that is the best news I've ever heard in my life. I got, because listen, I got some beard hairs in here. You know what I'm talking about? It's a mess. The bathroom don't look good in this place. There's some things in there that are hidden that I don't want to bring out in front of anybody. I don't want you to get into this house. But the thing is, is that God loves you so much as he says, I know every unclean impurity that's already in there. I can see everything. I've already been in your house and I've looked upon it. But I'm telling you, I still want to live there so badly that I sent my son to die on the cross and cleanse you in his blood so that I could dwell in your heart. And he's saying, all I'm asking from you is not that you try to clean it up yourself. I'm asking that you just believe because if you just believe, I'll come in and clean it myself. And he's saying, you need to come into this understanding of this new covenant. In the old covenant, the blessing was giving to those who kept God's commands per perfectly. And, and if they didn't keep them perfectly, the curse came upon them. But in the new covenant... The blessing comes upon those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and choose to follow Him. See, and this, what this means is, is that every time I mess up, I don't have to worry about if God's favor is lifted now. I don't have to worry about it. See, in the old covenant, man, if I messed up once, I better watch out. Because God may just punish me and a thunderbolt may fall down out of my head at any given time. Jesus comes and turns everything on its head and He says, look... You mess up, you will pay the consequences for your sins. And you should never take the new covenant. Paul dealt with this because sometimes Paul would preach this good news so hard that people would be like, well, praise God, we can just go out and sin now. And Paul said, no, you're missing the point. Because if this gospel was really real for you and your heart was really changed, you wouldn't want sin anymore. You would be dead to sin. And he's saying, if you still think that this gospel actually enables you to go out and sin because he's offering you forgiveness, then you've actually not come up under the new covenant yet because if you were under the new covenant, your heart would be transformed. You would hate sin. And every time you did it, you would feel bad about it and the Spirit would move you away from it more and more. doesn't mean that you wouldn't fail. And when you do fail, guess what? The, the grace of God would be there to say, look, I still have blessing and favor upon your life. I still want you to come into my presence. I still want you to offer your worship to me. I know you failed, but come into my presence and worship me and pray to me and I will empower you and continue to empower you to change. And I'll give you the strength. This is the new covenant. It's great news. See, in the old covenant, only one man 
could enter into the presence of God once a year. One man once a year into the presence of God. And they, they say that this man, it was such a fearful thing that this man would have to tie a rope with a bell around his foot. And when he went in, they would hear that bell ring, which means he was still alive. But if he, t- if he went in there sinfully, you know, well, then he might drop dead. And if they heard the bell stop ringing, they'd have to drag him out by the rope. That's messed up, isn't it? But let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross... That veil that separated us from God's presence was torn from top to bottom. And Jesus says, look, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, when you put your faith in Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses you and every single one of us have free access into the presence of God. And you and I together, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, we can enter into the presence of God freely anytime we want. When we gather this morning, guess what? We get to enter into the presence of God freely and we don't have to come fearfully because Jesus says because of what He's done, you can enter into His presence with boldness and come with boldness to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. When you're struggling, when you're in trouble, he says, I want you to enter boldly to the throne of grace. Enter boldly into my presence to receive what you have need of when you have need of it. He says, this is the new covenant. And Paul says, we are ministers of this new covenant. Man, that's good news. Are you glad we're ministers of the new covenant, not of the old? In the Old Covenant, I don't know if you, if you ever read the Old Testament, it is, a ver, it, it is awesome. And there's so many good things that need to be brought out about that. We need to preach the Old Covenant, the Old Testament from the Old Testament as much as possible, I believe. Uh, but, but, but when you get into it, you start to understand, you start to read. Anybody who reads through the Old, old Covenant, they ask me, they, they'll be like, man, this is some crazy stuff in here in this book. Anybody amen me on that? Everybody's afraid to do it. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't say that about the Scriptures. You shouldn't say that about the Scripture. You know? But the truth is is that if you read it, you're going to come across some stuff that you just don't understand. And I'm telling you that that does not mean that we should put it away. I'm telling you that's, that means we should learn how to understand it. Okay? Because there's a lot of stuff. But in the old covenant, because they were under that particular covenant, God was demanding righteousness from them. And Moses and Elijah and the prophets, they were enforcing the old covenant. That's why when people broke the laws, death came. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. That's why when Jesus came, what did he have to do? Die. He was paying the penalty for our sins, for our rebellion, because he didn't want us to experience that death. And that's why, just like that song says, when he comes out of the grave, I'm coming too. Because he raised from the dead. He paid my penalty. And he went and, and died the death that I deserved so that I could have the resurrection life that I didn't deserve. And, he's, and, he, and he offers us that. But see, the ministers in the Old Covenant, and here's what's funny is because even in today's world, people actually think, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked with pastors and preachers who feel like that they have the same ministry as Ezekiel or that they have the same ministry as John the Baptist. I'm telling you, you don't because the Old Covenant is over. You don't have the same ministry as Ezekiel. You don't have the same ministry as John the Baptist. You have the ministry that Jesus Christ has called you into to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they enforced the old covenant. So when Israel was in rebellion, when Israel was uh, in sin, they would proclaim that old covenant. And a lot of times, like, for example, when Samuel would show up on the scene, when the Old Testament prophet would show up on the scene, he'd show up and they'd be like, do you come in peace? They say that. They literally say that. Why? Because they knew that this guy might be coming to pronounce a curse on us because we probably broke something that we don't even know about. Always in fear. You know people like that right now, even in Manchester, right here in this area, because the gospel has not been preached the way that it should be. We have people that when you invite them to church, they say, well, we can't come to church. The walls might fall in on us. What do they think? They think it's an old covenant mentality. 
And, we're, and, and see, the gospel says no. Anybody who thirsts, come freely and drink from the, waters of, from the rivers of living water. Come freely and drink. We know you're messed up, but guess what? Jesus died for you while you were still in your sins, while you were still ungodly and unrighteous. Does he call you to repentance? Absolutely. But if you catch a glimpse of Jesus, he'll empower you to repentance. He will empower you to repent. You'll want to repent. It won't be a fearful thing. It will be a joyful thing. Yes, you will sometimes, when you realize your wickedness and your brokenness and your sinfulness, yes, you'll be broken before God and you should be broken before God. But there's always joy and peace that comes after it. And God will never stay angry at you. God will correct you out of love. He'll bring you back into that life. But we have to understand that we are no longer under that old covenant. When Elijah comes up on the scene, he says, Look, boys, there ain't going to be rain for three and a half years except it be at my word. Now, how could he do that? Because he was enforcing the old covenant, which said if they, if they worshipped idols, it wouldn't rain. He was bringing the curse on them because they were, they were, they were worshipping idols. Now, guess what? In the new covenant, what does Jesus say? We don't bring curses on people anymore. I don't know if you knew that or not. It actually says to bless those who curse you. Bless and curse not. Even when people are in rebellion against God, we choose to bless them. We choose to proclaim the good news to them. Do we call them to repentance? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we call them into a new covenant and not the old covenant. We tell them the benefits of this new covenant, that they can have forgiveness, they can have eternal life. And in verse 7 through 9 it says, Now if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not st look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Now this calls this the, the ministry of death. Now, and he says it was engraved on stones. The only thing that was engraved on stones was the, the Ten Commandments. Now, most people probably wouldn't call the Ten Commandments the ministry of death. Now, you, you say, Clay, well, are you saying the, the Ten Commandments are a bad thing? Absolutely not. Matter, matter of fact, the Bible says that the law, the Ten Commandments, are holy and they're just and they're good. But they are the ministry of death because no one can keep them in their own power. And because of that, when you break the law, you're deserving of death. That means that it's the ministry of death. And it talks about Moses because when he received the two tablets, the first time he received them, he never even made it to the bottom before he broke them because it just re it revealed that, guess what? They had, as soon as they were given, they had broken the commandments. That's what God was trying to demonstrate. So he had to go back up the mountain a second time, and this time God gave them the Ten Commandments, but he gave it to them with a little bit more grace. He gave it to them because when Moses comes, he, he, he has a face-to-face -face encounter with God, and all the people are saying, you go talk to him, God. We don't want a relationship with him. You go talk to him because we're afraid of him. Now, wouldn't that be a terrible thing that you would have to say to me, Clay, listen, you talk to God for us. You report back to us what he says because I don't want a relationship with him. That's what they were saying. Let it never be said of this church or any other church that that's how it functions and operates. You have a relationship with Jesus and access to Jesus as powerful as I have. Your prayers are as powerful as my prayers because we all have the same standing with God regardless. That people get in their mind, especially in this old, old covenant mentality, well, you know, let's go, let's go to the pastor because his prayers are, will work better. That's a lie. We all come in Jesus' name. God does not recognize your prayers above my prayers or my prayers above yours because when we come, He recognizes who we come through, and that's Jesus. 
None of us are on any greater standing. Now, some of us have a greater relationship. Some of us have a greater communion. Some of us have a closer walk. But at the end of the day, none of us have a greater standing with God. Because the blood of Jesus is what gets you close to God, what brings you into that right standing with God. So he says, this is the ministry of death. And here's the thing. So Moses comes down the second time, and here's what he's saying. Moses comes down the second time from the mountain, and the second time he comes down, his face shined. It was, it was shining and it was radiant to the point that he had to put a veil over his face. Because when they looked at his face shining... It, it basically represented that the holy law and the holy standard of God was revealing to them how messed up they were so that, so that they were deserving of death. So in order, they were afraid of him. They wouldn't look at him. So in order to keep them from that fear, he would keep that veil over his face. Now, before Moses does this, they had rebelled against God. They had broken the Ten Commandments. They had worshipped these golden calves and these idols. And, and Moses comes off and, and God is upset. And God actually says, listen, Moses... Stand back, I'm going to get rid of these people and start over. Why? Because he was dealing with them in the old covenant. Okay? And he says, I'm going to get rid of And Moses stands in the gap as a picture of Christ and says, Lord, do not blot them out. If you blot them out, blot me out. And he says, and here's the thing, Lord, remember that if we don't go with you, then how are we different from anybody else? And he says, I don't want to go forward and do anything unless your presence goes with us. Anybody say amen to that? I don't want to do anything. I don't want this church or anything in my... I don't want to go anywhere or do anything unless the presence of God goes with me. And then he said, he said, Lord, he said, I don't know what to do in this situation, but I'm asking you, don't leave us, don't forsake us, stay with us. And then he makes this cry, and I love this cry. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, Moses. He says, I found favor with you. You found favor with me. He says, I love you, Moses. I'm going I'm to overlook this offense. And he says, here's what's going to happen. He says, since you asked to see my glory, I'm going to pass by you. Now, here's what's very interesting. As God says, Moses, I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand because you can't see my face because if you see my face, you're going to die. You can't see the holiness of my face. So literally, God passes by Moses and shows him his back. That, that just gives him a glimpse of it. And as he gives him the glimpse of his back, he passes by and he says, the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh. He says, he's full of compassion and gracious and mercy to generation after generation, but he will by no means acquit the guilty, right? He's going to punish them to the third and fourth generations of children. And so what Moses does is he catches a glimpse of God's glory. Now, let me tell you something. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is his manifested holiness. It's when all of a sudden... In a moment of time, maybe you're in worship and you get just a speck of crust of the glory of God that falls off on you. And in that moment, when it touches you, it breaks you. It shatters you into a million pieces. You're wrecked because you've seen the nature of the most holy thing that you've ever seen in your life. That is the glory of God. And he says that this is the full, it's the na his nature, his character, his person, who he is. It's the weightiness of his presence. And Moses is saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want you to show me your glory. And God shows, shows him just a little bit of that glory. And what happens? His face actually starts to shine. And when the people see that glory, they can't even look at him because of the fear that's coming on them because of the holiness of God's glory. Now, in the Old Testament, I want you to understand that sometimes they would minister to the Lord. And it says the glory of the Lord would fill the temple. What would it be like if the glory of the Lord just filled this place one Sunday morning? Imagine that. See, the difference is, is that in the old covenant, God lived in a temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. 
And His glory would fill that temple. And it says when the glory would fill that temple, they would fall down on their faces and wouldn't even be able to minister because of the presence of God in that place. In the new covenant, guess what becomes the temple? You and I. And God says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. That He doesn't just want the glory of God to fill a building anymore, but He wants the glory of God to fill you so that when people look you in the face and look at your life and see your love and see and hear your voice and hear your speech and see what you do, that all of a sudden they start to catch glimpses of the glory of God in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. God wants to reveal His glory through you and through your life. His desire is for His glory to be radiant through you. So that whenever you do something that that, that is amazing and something that points to God, He says, man, I'm being glorified in you right now. I'm being glorified. This morning, through our worship team, God was being glorified. You could sense the presence of God. You could sense the glory of God flowing through them as they're singing praises to God. God is being glorified because Christ lives on the inside of them. Now see, Moses comes off and they were afraid of, the, afraid of them. And in verse 13 and 14 of, of 2 Corinthians, it says this. It says, well, let me read verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Now he's saying that when they read the Old Testament, at this point when Paul wrote this, you got to understand they didn't have the New Testament, did they? He was just now writing it. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures to go on. And he's saying when they read the Old Testament, there's a veil over their mind. And here's what I want to say is that some of us, if we do read the Old Testament, most of us don't. But when we do, and we should, there's a veil over our minds. That's what he's saying. There's a veil over our minds. Now, if you go to the very next chapter, I'm reading a lot of scriptures, I know, but you're going, it's going to be good. It'll make sense. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, and it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, this thing that I just preached to you this morning, a minute ago, he says, this thing can be veiled to people. They don't see it. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. He says, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, in verse 6, it says, For God who said, let, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. Now, think about this. In the Old Testament, nobody saw God. They saw glimpses of Him. Moses saw His back parts. But in the New Covenant, when Jesus dies on the cross, He says, Now you can see the fullness of my glory. And you can look at the fullness of my glory with an unveiled face. And he says, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the Scriptures, you don't have to be blinded anymore. And he says, this gospel that is veiled... And here's the thing. If the gospel is not attractive and if it's not good news, why in the world is Satan trying to blind people's minds from it? He's trying every day to blind people's minds from this good news and from this gospel. He says, it's veiled. He says, but now you can look at the full glory of God. And he says, the full glory of God is revealed in what? In the face of Jesus Christ. And when we look Jesus Christ in the face, we're looking God in the face. And he says, Jesus is not just a mediated form of who I am. He says, if you see Jesus, Jesus even said that if you see me, you've seen the Father. This Christianity, what we do, what we, what we worship, what we believe, what we believe is not just a religion. This is not just about trying to be better people. This is about knowing God in Jesus Christ. Period. If you know God in Jesus Christ, He will make you a better person. 
You can't be a better person without knowing God in Jesus Christ. The goal of Christianity is knowing God in Jesus Christ, seeing Him. He said that's the glory of God revealed is the face of Jesus Christ, to see Him, to see Him displayed. In verse 15, it says, Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Those who read Scripture and the Old Testament, he's saying, they can't see Jesus and a veil remains over their hearts. Now, how many of you, if you're being honest, when you've read the Old Testament or you've even read the Bible at all, you say, look, I tried clay and that sucker just didn't make sense to me. Praise God, I got two or three honest people. See, I hear that all the time. It's like, Clay, we get in the Bible, I try, man, but it's just weird. It don't make sense. And I'm going to show you that Jesus will actually open your understanding so that you can do it. Because he's not going to, look, again, he will never ask you to do anything that he doesn't empower you to do. He's not going to ask you to be a person of his word unless he gives you the understanding of that word. He will open your understanding. He will give you wisdom. The question is, do you have a heart for it? The question is, do you really want it? He'll give you the power to overcome that addiction and that sin. The question is, do you want it? He'll give you the ability to understand Scripture in a way that you never could before. The question is, are you hungry for it? All of these things are not going to come to you just because flippantly you happen to pass by one day and, well, if He gives it to me, I'll take it. No, you have to desire this thing. It has to be a desire of your heart. And when you want it, he sees that. Man, Jesus said, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. If you don't have a desire for it, it will not be given to you. He says, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. Not show up flippantly and if it just so happens to come, I'll take it. No, you got to want it. Somebody amen me this morning. Because many of you have been in a complacent state for a long time waiting on something to happen. And God is saying, if you'll draw near to me, I'll draw near to you and I'll change your life. If you want to know the scriptures, you better open it up and start to ask me, God, show me something in here. I don't care if it's just a nugget. Show me something. Make sense of something in this book to me so that I can understand it, so that my heart can be changed, so that I can hear your voice. I'm not hearing your voice. I feel lost in this world, God. You ever been in that place? I'm telling you, when you get desperate, God starts to listen. God starts to pay attention. He says, but when people read the Old Testament, he says, there's a veil on their hearts. And Jesus taught that the, that the whole, the primary purpose of Scripture was to point to him. John 5, 39, he told the religious people of his day, he says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life. But he says, these are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. So another point, see, even, even church, going to church, going to church is so that you know Jesus. Reading the scriptures is not just so you know the Bible, because let me tell you something. I can go down here in different places in the county and start to talk to people about Jesus, and they can quote scripture, and they know the Bible, and they're the most religious people in the world, and they're, and they're living crazy lives. But when you talk to them about Jesus, they already know everything. You can know the Bible and not know Jesus. You can know Scripture and know about church and know the right things to say and not have a transforming relationship with Jesus. Knowing Scripture don't mean a whole lot at the end of the day unless it points you to Jesus. He said that's the whole point of the Scripture is that actually that it testifies and points to me. And so even here's one of the things that makes the Bible really interesting to me is even when we read the Old Testament, a lot of times people will preach it from a man-centered perspective. They say, well, when you read the Old Testament, you know, it's just a history lesson of, of Israel. But Paul said, no, all of these things in the Old Testament were written for us. And he says they're types and shadows 
of who we are and who God is now in the new covenant. For example, people will say, well, you know, Abraham and Isaac, sometimes you just got to lay your Isaac down. And, and, and that's a good interpretation, but it's a secondary interpretation. It's a secondary interpretation. Because when Abraham lays down Isaac, just like I've said before, the first and primary interpretation is the love of the father choosing to lay down his son as a sacrifice for you. When we read about Joseph in the Old Testament, the primary interpretation is not just about a man whose the, the favor of God was on him and he shows you how to, how to resist sexual immorality. All those are good and those are secondary interpretations. The primary interpretation in Joseph is that you see jo- Joseph as the favored son of the father. He was given the coat of many colors because it's a picture of Jesus Christ who was clothed in the manifold grace of God. And guess what? He was rejected by his brothers, Israel, the same way that Jesus was rejected by Israel. And they were, he was sold over into, into death. And guess what? He went into the pit the same way that Jesus went into the tomb, but he was raised up out of that tomb the same way that Joseph was raised up out of the pit. And he went into prison the same way that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. But on the third day, he was raised again. And guess what? When Joseph was raised again, he became the bread of life to all of the world around him the same way that Jesus is now the bread of life to all the Gentiles. And Joseph married a Gentile woman the same way that Christ now has his bride who are all Gentiles. See, the primary interpretation of Scripture. Somebody said, well, you know, David, I really don't like reading the Bible because it's violent. Praise the Lord. It is violent because you know why? Humanity is violent. God is not violent. And in the old covenant, you see a lot of different things and you see war and God is accommodating the brokenness of humanity because humanity lived in war. And in the New Covenant, Paul says when you read about these wars in the Old Testament, what you're really reading about in the New Testament is the fact that we live in a spiritual war. Jesus is nonviolent. Matter of fact, Jesus said if somebody hits you on the cheek, turn to him the other. He's nonviolent. So he, he is never... You, here's what I'm saying is you can't say, well, you know what? I'm going to go the old covenant here because this person did this. This person committed adultery. Old covenant says she should be stoned. Let's kill her. You can't go to the old covenant to trump what Jesus says in the new. People will do that though, won't they? I can't go to the old covenant to trump what Jesus says in the new. Even David... David, man, he cuts off Goliath's head. That's brutal. I know, it's violent. But it is a picture of the fact that he went to the same place, Golgotha. It's, it's, it's a name from Goliath. Jesus was like, David is, 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 is Jesus. He's the anointed son, the anointed king who went to Golgotha and cut the head off of sin and death. The thing that nobody else could defeat and everybody was afraid of, he went and cut it off. See, all these are pictures of Christ, pictures of Jesus. And see, it says that we all, this makes the Bible exciting to me, does it you? See, there's layers of interpretation, but we have to understand how we're reading it. And he says, we all with unveiled face, right? And why does he say that we're all doing this? Because Moses was the only one in the Old Testament that could even see the glory of God. Nobody else could see the glory of God. Everybody else was covered up and just seeing a reflection off of his face. But now he says we all have equal access into this standing. And he says that we are transformed. Let's read uh, chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 really quick. It says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. He's saying, look, when you start to turn to the Lord, and in a practical sense, I'm not saying you turn to the Lord because you came to an altar and said a prayer. I'm saying that on a daily basis, you're turning to the Lord. You're turning your heart to the Lord. Every day, you turn to the Lord. You say, Lord, I need you to speak to me today. 
Lord, I'm going to open your word. I'm turning my heart to you. And when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. All of a sudden, you start to see. All of a sudden, your heart is open to read the scripture. He says, when you turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the spirit. And I love this. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You know, you know how you know a person's filled with the spirit? Man, there's freedom on the inside of that person. There's freedom on the inside of that person. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. See, he's saying you don't have to put a veil over your face like Moses anymore. He says you can turn to the Lord and remove that veil and you can look straight on at God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And he says with unveiled faces we're contemplating the Lord's glory. Contemplating, we're thinking about it. Now, in the most practical sense, let me give you something practical here, just like I said in the beginning. In the most practical sense, if you don't take anything away from this message, here's what I'm asking you to do and apply to your life. And that is, is that you start to get in the Word of God. And if you have questions, write those questions down. If it doesn't make sense to you, do not allow that to stop. I, I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I would read it and there were a hundred questions I had. I didn't know anything I was reading. But I would write those questions down and in prayer I would ask the Lord, Lord, what does that mean? And I kid you not, sometimes within a day, sometimes within a week, sometimes within six months, He would show me. Either it would come to my mind or I would hear it in a sermon or somebody would just speak it to me randomly. But God has showed me everything that I've asked Him for up to this this point. And I continue to ask him. But the question is, is what most people do is because they don't have a relationship with the Spirit of God. They read the Bible, they say, that don't make sense. I ain't going to be able to understand this. What you need to do is you need to stay in the Word and say, Lord, I'm asking you to teach me what this means. Help me understand what this means. And the beauty of it is, is guess what? God has also given you teachers and pastors and evangelists that you can come to them and say, hey, we need, I got a question. Matter of fact, a big part of my small group is dudes will come in and we'll just sit down and we'll say, what kind of questions do we have while we're reading the Scripture? And man, we'll get into conversations that are life-transforming because we're reading the Scripture and asking questions. My point to you is you need to get daily time, even if it's a short amount of time, and start to read the Bible and start to ask the Holy Spirit to teach you what you are reading. Amen? If you only write one thing down in your notes, say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I got to start reading the Bible and asking the Holy Spirit to teach me what I'm reading. All right, point one, check. If we can do that one thing, you're like, I had, I think, I, somebody, told, somebody told me just this last week, they said, man, it's amazing what happens if you just get up and read the Bible and pray. I mean, it's that simple. This thing ain't that difficult. God will speak to you. He will show you something. And he says, we're being transformed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This word transformed is the word we get metamorphosis from. And he says, as you contemplate the Lord's glory, as you behold the face of the Lord. And his point being is, just right then, and even while we're here now, and here's the thing. You can be listening to this sermon. Maybe this week you can pull up a podcast and listen to it. You can write notes down while you're listening. But either way, when you're getting in the Word of God, the written Word, whether you're listening to it preached, whether you're reading it yourself, whether you're listening to a podcast, when you're writing those scriptures down, when you're meditating on these things, he says, you need to pray, Lord, open my eyes to see Jesus. And sometimes you just you sit in the Scripture for a minute and you sit down and you start to pray and you just close your eyes and you imagine Jesus. You read about Him in the Gospels and you imagine Him doing all those things. And the Scripture says that as I am beholding that and seeing that with the eyes of my heart, I'm being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the same image. You say, well, how's that happen, Clay? I don't know, man. That's unreal. 
I just know that if I'm in the Word and I see Jesus, that's who I'm looking for based on the Scripture when I do. And sometimes, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding you, if I have a situation, I'll, I'll invite Jesus into it. I'll say, Jesus, I, wanna, I just want you to walk into this situation. And I'll start to imagine how He would act, what He would do. Start to picture him. I start to behold him. When I'm reading the scriptures, I'm just meditating. I'm contemplating how he behaved, how he treated the Pharisees, how he, betr- how he treated the prostitute, how he treated the people around him. And as I'm beholding that, the Holy Spirit's at work transforming me from the inside out. Amen? So how do we behold the face of Jesus? And I've already said it a million times, but he, but he says it in verse 15. It's through the written word. The context is... Reading Moses. Now, Moses is the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. When people read Moses, he said the veil was over their heart. See, God doesn't just want you to see Moses. He wants you to see Jesus. When you see Moses, you stay the same. But when you see Jesus in Moses, you're transformed. He says when you're reading the Scriptures, the written Word, there's transformation that comes. I want you all to come to the music. I'm going to finish up. So in Luke chapter 24, I'm, I'm going to finish in this last little portion of Scripture, but I, re, I really like this. But in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been risen. He's, he's raised from the dead. And y- y'all know what day Jesus was raised from the dead? He was raised from the dead on Sunday. People even today, they get in big arguments over when the Sabbath is. The Sabbath, historically, is actually Saturday. Amen. It is. It's Saturday. That's when the Sabbath is. But what happens was, and even in history will tell you, is that because Jesus was raised on Sunday, the church very early, even in like the year A.D. 40 and 50, they met on Sundays because they called it the Lord's Day. And they knew better than anybody else that the Sabbath was Saturday. So they met on Sundays, and that's why we meet on Sundays. That's why it's been a church tradition now for 2,000 years because Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday. And so he's raised from the dead on, the day, on that day, and it says in verse 13 of Luke 24, it says, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing. Recognizing him. Now these, these two disciples, one of them was named Cleopas, and, and Cleopas' wife, he, she was actually at the tomb or at the, at the cross with, with Mary Magdalene and Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. So this guy would have known Jesus. And he's walking with another guy, and Jesus draws alongside of them, but it says that their eyes were restrained from, from seeing him. Now you'll, you'll find out why their eyes were restrained here in just a moment, but they didn't know who he was. And so he draws alongside of them, and he's talking to them, and they're dejected, and they're sad, they're depressed because of what's going on. And then it says, and he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces were downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Well, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And I love Jesus. Listen to what he says. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Now what you're going to find out is that he's pointing out, it's Sunday, right? 
He's pointing out, he says, how foolish you are. You're foolish because you don't know the word. And he says, sometimes you know the word, but you're slow of heart to believe. And the church, the indictment on the church in today's world is they're foolish because they don't know the word. And two, when they do know the word, they don't believe the word. And he says that to them. And so it's Sunday morning, and what does Jesus do? He does not reveal to them, hey, I'm Jesus. I did raise from the dead. That's not what he does, does he? Immediately, next verse, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He walks for seven miles with them talking about, hey, hey, in Genesis, you remember Abraham and Isaac and, and all these places in the Psalms when it talks about how that there's going to be death, but he won't allow his holy one to see corruption. You remember in Isaiah when it talks about how that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He's going through all the scriptures on a seven mile walk, pointing out how everything in the Old Testament was about him. And he won't allow them to see him physically. He's there physically, but he's holding their eyes so that he cannot see them. Why? Because Jesus thinks it's more important for you to see him in the word first than it is to see him in the flesh. And I'm telling you, you have got to understand that because as a Christian, you cannot live and have an abundant life and know what God has called you to do and fulfill God's calling for your life without seeing Jesus in the word and knowing him through the word. He clearly says that he would rather you see him in Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to bring that revelation to you than you see him in the flesh. Because if you see him in the Scripture, that's how you're going to be transformed from glory to glory and you're going to become like him and the Holy Spirit is going to fill you and transform your life. In verse 32, I love what it says. It says, They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked? with us on the road and open the scriptures to us. See, God wants burning hearts. And I, don't know, I don't know how you feel this morning. I don't know if you're like, man, you know what church is boring? That preacher up there, he is boring. But I pray to God before I preach the gospel every time, Lord, let our hearts burn within us as we open the scripture. Let a fire be kindled. Let us have a hunger for your word. Let us want to have an encounter with you, God. Let us want to know more about you. And, and listen, this is why when Donald and I preach, some people would j- jump onto us. You know, we preach a long time. Y'all, y'all, amen me. Somebody amen. And I hope to God that we continue to preach a long time. Because listen, the, the, the entire world is cutting back and cutting back and saying we need to slow it down. We need to take it easy. And I'm telling you, we cannot live without the Word of God being proclaimed. And the Word of God has got to go forth in power. And I know, I, I know in today's world, man, you can't... I, I even had a preacher tell me one time, he listened to one of my messages. He said, that was good. It was really good. He said, some unsolicited advice, though. He said, you need to keep your messages to about 30 minutes. I said, you do you, I do me. I love you, brother. I appreciate the advice. But listen, I got one day a week to give my people and feed my flock. I got one day a week. You say, well, you're feeding us too much. You're going you to be healthy. We're going to eat some We're going to eat some word. Amen. So what I want you to do is get into it with me. You need to pray for me and Donald and whoever else will be speaking. And you need to say, God, fill them with a word that's going to change my life. Get behind it. Fill them with something that's going to change my life. Let this word get in my heart. Let it change me. Man, praise God. You read, you read. Just spend time. You get in. You get in Matthew, Mark, 
I do, well, I'm just reading. If, if, I, if I'm feeling sick, I'll literally, I'll turn to Matthew chapter 8. And I'll just start to read how the leper came to him when he had that skin disease. And I'll read how Je- he'll say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And I just imagine him saying that to me and just reaching out and touching me. And I read in there how the centurion, man, he, he was one of the only guys who could see past the flesh to see the glory of Jesus. He said, Jesus, I know who you are, bro. I know who you are. He said, I know that you're a man of authority the same way that I am. And my servant is sick. All you got to do is say a word. And I know he'll be healed. And Jesus was shocked. He said, I've not seen so great a faith in Israel. And immediately his servant was healed. In Matthew 8, everybody that came to him. See, here's the thing. When we deal with sickness and disease, the word of God is like, when they were walking on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus means a warm bath. Every Sunday morning, you need a warm bath in the word of God. And Monday, you need to get in the word of God and have another warm bath. And when you're sick and when you're sad, you need to get in the scripture and take a bath and let that stuff wash you from all the junk that you've picked up during the week. And you've got to get a word in your heart that is going to change your situation. What happens is, is we get sick or get into a certain position and we, we stop seeking God. We don't get a word. We're not reading about healing in the scriptures. But the Bible says that the word of God is medicine. It's health to all your flesh. And I'll read that. And I'll think about I think about Jesus when I'll read, I'll just go over. I, you say, well, I've already read that story. I will read those stories thousands of times, and I'll read them thousands of times more because the Holy Spirit has never done unveiling new layers of Jesus to me. And I'll read that story over and over again about how Jesus was in the boat and the storm came and the disciples were all tore up because it was, it was all windy and messed up and Jesus was asleep in there on a pillow. And they cried out, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus, just as, I just imagine him, just cool and calm. He walks up, looks at the storm. He rebukes it and says, peace, be still. Poof. And the Bible says there was a mega calm. And then he looked at him and he said, how is it that you're so afraid? Where's your faith? And even his rebukes are beautiful. You know what I'm talking about? Even when he rebukes you, it's just like, man, that's just, I love the way you did that, Jesus. If you give me an opportunity to rebuke somebody, I want to rebuke them like you. That's just good. And, and, and he says that. And basically he's saying to him, how is it that you take so little when I have so much to offer? He did not. Here's the other thing I love about Jesus. He did not rebuke them because they woke him up from his sleep. He rebuked them because they troubled their own hearts with their fear. I love that. He's not worried about himself. He's worried about you. He's focused on you. He won't rebuke you because you wake him up or you trouble him. He'll rebuke you because you trouble yourself with your own fears. And here's what we're going to pray this, these last verses. Go to verse 44 and I'm going to be done. I just got fired up for a minute. He said to them, verse 44, This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then, verse 45, He opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. Holy Spirit's going to open your mind so that you can understand the Scriptures. You just got to do your part. You got to get you a Bible. You got to open that thing up. You got to start to read it. You miss a day, just get back on it. Keep reading it. Say, Holy Spirit, open my mind so that I can understand the Scriptures. Because listen, nobody can understand them apart from the Holy Spirit. You can't just, don't just say, well, you know, Clay, 
he's, he's called to that. He's a pastor. He's, he, he, knows, he knows about that stuff. Listen, there was a time where I had no idea what was going on in the Bible. Had no idea, but I prayed, man, and I asked God, and God started to show me things piece by piece, and I saw with all of my heart, God, give me an understanding of these things, and piece by piece, he opened it up to me, and I don't think that there's anybody in this room that he will not do the same thing, amen? Well, listen, let's, I want you to stand to your feet. Let's, let's pray together, and I want, our, I want our prayer team just to come forward, because here's the thing. Sometimes I think that whenever we leave here, there are people that they really need prayer for something, but because we're hungry and because we're just, we're just sort of whatever and we're ready to go, people don't receive prayer. We believe prayer changes things. And if you need to give your life to Jesus, it's important that you tell somebody. And I want you to come up to me or Donald or one of these women or men up here that's, that's on this prayer team. And I want you to say, look, I just want you to pray for me that I could give my life to Jesus, that, I could, that something could happen. If you're dealing with sickness or you're dealing with, 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 with any kind of thing in your life, I want you to come to one of, these, one of these men, one of these women, and let them pray with you. And if not, just bypass one of these men and women. Come straight to the altar where you're seated. But listen, it's so important that you learn to respond to God. Amen. There's no better opportunity than right now to just say, Lord, I, I received this word. I need to respond to you. I need to pay attention uh, to, to what's going on. So, so, so let's pray. I want to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to just respond to the Lord, whether you come up and ask for prayer or, or at your seat, whatever you do. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord Jesus, for each and every person that's here this morning, we're thankful that they came. God, we speak a blessing over each person. And Lord, here's what I ask. I ask that you would open all of our minds to understand the scriptures because God when we open our Bibles when we get in our Bibles when we read our Bibles we want to see you Jesus because your word says that as we behold your glory Lord we are transformed into the same image with ever increasing glory we are becoming more and more like you every time that we catch a glimpse of you so we speak freedom into this place right now in Jesus name and that every form of blindness that Satan would put over any mind or any heart we command it to be removed in the name of Jesus for the veil to be lifted and removed and for every eye to be opened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ Lord let your glory be made known God and fill your people with your spirit in Jesus name we pray Amen.